together, that you've made a way for us to uh, come together as men uh, that have a new desires in their hearts, that we're not bent towards um, towards our flesh, Lord, but we, we have the Holy Spirit inside us, Lord, that prompts us to, to wake up early, Lord, to know who you are, to study. Lord, we ask that by that same power, Lord, that you just invest in us this morning, that you pour into our spirits, that you give us wisdom and understanding of your word. Um, what could be a difficult passage for us to, to learn and study, that you open our eyes to truth. Lord, thank you for, um, for Dennis and for bringing this group together. Um, I ask you that you continue to encourage him and bless him, uh, that he can prepare each week a meaningful study for us, Lord, that we can be built up in the church, that we can grow as Christians and further glorify the name of Christ and his kingdom. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So um, I'll take a few minutes to give some some overview um, we're really, you know, in this chapter seven, we're really getting into really kind of pulling out the microscope and looking at the, um, at the priest, you know, the role of the priest, the priestly order and, and kind of what that, that means. And, um, and, and one of the things, um, uh, just if we kind of look, I'm going to just look at some of the headings. So we started off with the supremacy of God's son in chapter one, and we dealt with uh, how he was greater than the angels. And then in chapter two, we start talking about do not neglect this great salvation and how Jesus is the founder of the salvation. And then he goes in and um, I like the way I think it was Paul that brought it up that, that when we look at the gospels, um, where the audience of the gospels was very sensitive is towards like Moses and Abraham. Um, and the temple. Those are those are three circumcision. Those are about four things that they're really sensitive to. Um, and and so when they think they're talking bad about Moses or they're um, denying Abraham or something of that nature, um, or wants to destroy the temple or change the way temple worship is, this is all sensitive issues. And so he's coming right through through Hebrews, pretty much dealing with every one of these. And so in chapter three, he talks about their hero Moses. And talks about how he was more of a servant because the fulfillment of the promise of the offspring of David had not come um, in Christ at the cross. And that that how the people that he stewarded and shepherded were rebellious. And he walks in and talks about this rebellion and how they didn't enter rest. And so he he pushes them back. He says, in that point, we were still looking forward, you know, essentially to the cross in the terms that we think about it. Um, they were still looking forward to that. And so he's trying to point them to that now there's a rest in this great salvation that they didn't have available to them, and let's not miss it. And so he moves on through that with um, four, and as he gets to 415, he begins to talk about Jesus being a, a great high priest. And he, as he's working through that, we get to, you know, through that part, he's working through, he's talking about kind of how a priest comes. He talks about that, um, no one, the priest doesn't point, him, point himself and, and these kind of things. And then he goes into what people call the warning passages in 511. He talks about this audience that's really mature and the importance of them having the framework for maturity. And he begins to go in and talk about how they're having to still learn the same foundation and that if, if they don't grow, that this is a really bad problem. And then he, he, he goes on to talk about, you know, 
hey, I have hope that you guys are going to come out of this. And he begins to talk about last week we looked at this um, certainty of God's promise that by two unchangeable things, both God's word. You know, I, I, it's so funny. I went to church after that that little lesson. And um and the and the and the pastor just begin to kind of press in that anything God says has to happen. Like if He commands anything, like we can command stuff. We can we can lie because we can command stuff, and and it not come to pass. But that's not the way it is with God. If He says, "Let there be life," then there's life, or "Let there be light," <laughs> there is light. So by that sense, God cannot lie because anything He says has to happen. And um and so. If that wasn't enough, if you knew God that way, and you knew that anything he said had to happen. So he says, I'm going to bless you. You would say, well, he's going to bless me because he said it, um, you know, but he goes beyond that and he gives an oath. And we'll bring that back in the text this morning. He'll use that oath um, where I, I was even thinking about that. If you put yourself in a court of law, even if you're a Christian, there's something about the oath that when you take a witness stand and they say, they need your witness because you're the eyewitness and they don't have the facts. And was this the guy you saw robbing the bank or whatever? And, and, and you say, yes, I, I see that this is the guy that, that um, robbed the bank. And, um, and, but that's at the police station or that's out on the street, but they want to stroll you before a, a group of jurors and in an audience and before your, your, your person that you're saying is the guilty party and before they hear from you, they get you to swear on a bottle and they say, do you do you promise this is the truth? Or, or like when people, two people are talking and they say, I, you know, I don't even know if this is right to say, but they'll say, I, I swear to God that I'm not lying to you. So so this oath takes on this other level. And so last week we finished with the certainty of the promise that we have in God by two unchangeable things, one that everything he says has to happen let there be light and there has to be light and then the other is is he 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 goes and when he goes to swear to say look i can see y'all not want to take my testimony so i'm gonna swear by something you know to give you some assurance he's like there's no one else greater to swear than himself so he kind of makes a little bit of a sort of a joke there you know it's, it's kind of funny i guess to me he's like i'm so awesome that there's no one awesome, more awesome than me to talk, to, to say about this. And, um, and so as we look at our text this morning, we're going to see, we're going to see oath. Um, you're gonna, we're going to see the oath again, and we're going to see the, um, about the greater here, you know, in that situation where, where he's saying there's no greater than me, where we're seeing where Melchizedek, Abraham sees him as greater than himself, and he asks for a blessing. So that'll be the, one of the first parts we'll look at this morning. So um, um, I guess one other thing I want to say is, so we're starting seven. We've come through the prep work. We've come from the warning. And in seven, eight, nine, and 10, he's looking at launching out a detailed description of, of building this house. Um, we have a foundation. The fulfillment is coming. Now we're going to come into a wise understanding of what has happened so we can be anchored to that. And he does that by talking about Melchizedek and he talks about this different type of priesthood and he begins to lay the framework that we're going to leave the Levitical or Aaron priesthood and we're going to move into an indestructible priesthood under Melchizedek and, and Christ is, is fulfilling that thing. 
and then he'll go on um, and he'll talk about that Christ is the the high priest of a better covenant. And then he'll talk on, he says, uh, the earthly holy place. He's going to talk about, because what he's talking about is these promises are being fulfilled. And then you can't just say that the promises are done away with, um, but they're at least lessened. You know, we got to step into the new thing and, and begin to let go of the old thing. And so in this sense, he's, this is another, we talked about, we said, if you if you talked about Abraham, they got a little sensitive. I'm sorry, my on my screens they won't stay open. Uh, but the um, but he said if we said four things. We said if they talk about Abraham, they got sensitive. Moses, they got sensitive. The temple, they got sensitive, and and um and then circumcision, they got sensitive. And that was a little bit more in Acts in the New Testament than what he's talking about here. But but here he's saying he's talking about a better covenant. They didn't want to leave the old covenant. He's talking about the earthly holy place. And when he talks about that, he's trying to say Christ is not serving in the holy of holies here on earth. He's serving in the holy of holies in heaven. And that the holy of holies on earth was just a, 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 a concept. It was something here that we could see that was a concept to us to remember and to look forward to the heavenly concept. Um, and then he talks about redemption through the blood of Christ. And so he spends some time talking about how Christ's blood is greater than the blood of sheep and goats and, and, and lambs and stuff. So he's a greater sacrifice. He, he's the priest in a, in, a holy, in a better holy place. He's the priest of a better covenant. And then he talks about how that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. And so those are the four points that he'll unpack. um, more deeply in these next four chapters but as we start this morning um, I just broke it into three parts and he actually kind of touches on all those things so we so we we don't want to get caught up in the details of all this text and just kind of miss the forest for the trees we want to realize that what the author is doing if you were to sit down and read seven eight nine and ten and just kind of process it. You won't be able to process it all because there's a lot of details, and some of it's a little foreign, foreign from what you normally hear at church or the way you normally think as a Christian. But if you just start processing it and remember that from seven to ten, he was lay, laying an amazing spring, you know, diving board for you to spring off into what God has for you. And um, and and the devil would do anything. I think I brought up the parable of the souls a, a while back. In the first parable, it says that when the seed was sown, that the devil steals it real quick before, um, you know, before it can take 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 root. And then the next two, you know, it's whether the, the, the worries and cares of this life choke it out or you don't have enough root. So I would I would as we work through these t- these these chapters, I would I would keep that in mind. And I think that we get to a place here that has enough details and enough potential to change the way you walk your Christian life out that, uh, that the devil's going to do everything he can to, to make it hard for you to spend the time through the week, looking at it, the time meeting in the morning and, um, and he's going to make it difficult. So, um, that was a long introduction. Do y'all want to say anything before we, we jump in, um, with the actual chapter, chapter seven? I thought, I thought it was a good recap, Dennis. Okay. 
Good. Well, so what I did so that, you know, if you want to jot anything down, um, what I did, um, this was a difficult one to really simplify and break down and put a little outline and format. But what I can say basically is um, from seven to 10 and then from 11 to 20 and then taking up from there, 21 to 28 was the three parts that I kind of concluded from. And, and if we would just go ahead and throw three thoughts so we can kind of be thinking about where we're going and what we're doing as we unpacking it is that we introduce, we, we begin to get some content about who the author sees Mel, Mel, Melchizedek at, as, and he begins to say, you know, Hey guys, I know y'all don't think about Melchizedek very much, but, um, but we need to look at this because this is a secret little gem that was hidden in the old Testament that we hadn't really seen, but now that Christ is fulfilled, it gives explanation to what Christ is doing and why he's doing it. And so he brings it up. And so he spends a little time defining who Melchizedek is. And then one of the things that I think we can just take away this morning for the first little section is that it, it the text makes it clear that Abraham himself, when he entered into the presence of Melchizedek, he saw him as being greater than himself and asking for a blessing. And so then what does that mean? And then the author moves into that and he says what it means is that essentially the Levitical priest line is not perfect. It's not going to bring everything about perfect. And we need to look at if perfection is going to come and fulfillment is going to come, it's going to come from a little bit different type of priesthood and Christ fulfills that perfectly. And then at the last part, he just kind of does a little, little summary and nails down like all these little four points that we see through seven to 10 um, there. So I'm going to read the first little bit and we'll um, unpack it. Um, I would say some key words of the text is how he uses a tenth of a part or a tithe. He does that mostly in the first part. Um, but one of the, I think the overall total key, key word that he uses, he's going to use it a little bit here at the beginning, and then the third section, he's going to use it more. But as the idea of a priest forever, um, that idea um, is going to be painted as we look through these details, but that idea that... A high priest was for, uh, for, for life, but what he, once he died, that priest was gone. So like even like in our system of presidents, once the term of the president is, is up, then that's, that's it for him. Um, and, and you don't know if another good president, like if you like that president, you don't know if the next president is going to be good like that. So that's a way that we can kind of start to draw close to this. But, but this is a powerful statement. That, that Christ is our high priest forever because he cannot die. And he has an, it's going to say an indestructible life in a little bit. So anyway, let's, let's read the, the first um, three verses here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to, to him, Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything he um, thing he is first by translation by the name king of righteousness and then he is also king of salem that a that is king of peace he is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the son of god he continues as a priest forever which is the first time that point is said that i think is important um salem was I'll try to say this as best I, I can understand it, but Salem was the physical place of Jerusalem eventually, but it hadn't become Jerusalem because they hadn't taken 
you know, the land at this point in time. Um, and so what most of the commentaries say is that Melchizedek would have been a Canaanite king in the place of Jerusalem. But for some reason, God called him and made him a priest of the most high, high God. And Abraham recognized that. So right prior to that, in the Genesis text, you had two people. There was three players there, but there was two people. There was the king of Solomon, the king of Salem, and then there was um, Abraham. The king of Sodom was, of course, the king of a wicked place, and he wanted to give Abraham a lot of money for bailing him out of being, you know, from rescuing him and giving him his stuff back. And Abraham said, I'm not going to take nothing from you because then you would say later on when God blesses me that, that you had a part of that, that, you, you know, you're the founder of that. But yet when he sees the king of Salem, which is Melchizedek, he wants to give 10% of the spoils to him, you know, for a blessing. Um, and so um, there's really six things right here. I said the one Salem, which is actually the physical location of Jerusalem. So I just think that's something kind of unique there. Um, but, he, but he also, his name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then Salem he was the king of Salem. That means the king of peace. And so um, I forgot how one commentary said it that, um, let's see, it might be right here. Um, but it, it's, it, it's, it resembles, it says something about, let me see if this is it. Some believe that Melchizedek, well, I don't see it, but I'll just try to paraphrase it. But but Christ, he said in salvation, Christ comes and he brings us righteousness. And because he brings us righteousness, um, we have peace with God. And so he thought it was fitting that the order of that um, was like that. Um, so I just thought that was a little bit neat. But you've got um, Jerusalem or Salem, king of righteousness, king of priests. You also have this idea where um, no other place is there a king that can play the role of priest other than Christ. Um, so these are the only two scriptural people that you have there. And then just the last little three things he does in one sentence in verse three is he paints this picture. He is without father, mother, genealogy. Some of the most practical ways that that can be unpacked is that all the Levitical priests um, had to be, they had to have a gene genealogy that was traced. Um, even when they came back and built the second temple, the ones that they couldn't prove the gene genealogy was not considered, you know, worthy or were, were unable to serve in the temple because they didn't have no proof of their genealogy. So one simple thing that he's saying here is that he's without father, mother or genealogy is that genealogy doesn't play a bearing in God's calling for him as a high priest. Um, so what this begins to do is separate two different um, covenants, the covenant of law and the covenant of grace that uh, are, are promised maybe is another way you can say it. So what happens is under the requirements of being a priest for promise or grace, you don't have to have a genealogy, but the way God set the pattern for the, the, the priest to be in over the law, you had to have a genealogy. And so he's beginning to paint that, how this is a different thing here. And he says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, at this part, that's where you start to see almost a description of deity. Um, a lot of authors say they don't think that's what the Bible is trying to say about Melchizedek, that he was deistic or even an incarnation of Christ. Um, 
you know, I don't think we have enough evidence to prove that one way or the other. But what is true is when we look at creation from a Big Bang point of view, um, you know, um, I heard one thing in philosophy that God is the, um, so I think the, the um, necessity being, I think is the way it called it. So um, when you talk about Big Bang, you're saying that everything was created out of nothing. So the idea of the sovereignty of God is that he always existed from beginning to end. There was never no point in time where he didn't exist. So at least we're bringing into, as we're looking at what kind of priesthood do we have, what kind of ministry of temple worship do we have? We're talking about we're moving from a priest that is born and dies and it's sort of temporary to someone that is everlasting and eternal. Um, so I think that's at least one thing we can kind of clearly bring from as the author is trying to paint this new pre priesthood by having neither beginning of days or life. And then the last thing, but resembling the son of God, he continues as a priest forever, which is kind of just what I was just saying. Um, so anybody thoughts on those things? That was a big unpacking of three verses. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could have did a whole study on just the first three verses, Dennis. Um, yeah, no, I, man, you hit on, you hit on a lot of good points. I, I, you know, ran across that too, that nowhere else in scripture do you see this idea of a priest being a king or a king being a priest. And actually God, God commanded it that way that, um, you know, those in civic duty needed to be separated from those in the priesthood. Um, I think you get, you see people get into trouble like Saul who uh, tried to play the role of a priest at one point um, and, and have an unauthorized sacrifice. And we see how that ended up for him. But, uh, but, but here you've got a king, not only a king, but also a priest and, and Jesus is unique in that. Um, also, you pointed on, you know, the, the idea of this greater thing that's coming. And, you know, the, the book of Hebrews was starting off showing Jesus is greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. Um, even the priesthood in the new covenant is going to be something greater. And it'll, it'll get into that. So, I mean, the, to me, it continues to drive home the point that, that Christianity is, is the greater thing, uh, you know, than than their old way, their old covenant, than Judaism. Yeah. What do you think, Shane? Any thoughts? Man, I'm just sitting back learning from y'all. You know, Hebrews <laughs> is, is, is so tough. Um, and when you're breaking down these things, I'm like, man, I've, you know, I read through this a couple of times, and I, a lot of this I never even picked up. Like the genealogy, I, I never thought about that. Yeah. So yeah, y'all can and, just, and I, just keep teaching. Me. Yeah, and, and I'm sorry. The way I, I said it, uh, but that's I mean, because I mean, I ain't saying I ain't dug into it, you know, to try to be able to teach it. Uh, but 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 man, that's that's great that we have books like that in here that really makes us look deeper, and it it shows you that we don't have this shallow, unthought out faith that we're uh, that we're you're serving in that you know these first century christians you know as you listen to them they weren't risking their life for nothing there was a reason they they saw something and, and sometimes in our culture we uh we uh get away from from really getting back to the root of what they saw so so looking at verse four we'll, we'll read i guess three more verses here it says see how great this man 
was to who Abraham, the patriot, gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And so just, I'll go ahead and read this next part, but just kind of pause in a second. So, so Abraham is seeing this, that he's greater and he's, he's, he's submitting to this tithe and, and Abraham's the one of promise. I mean, God didn't say to Melchizedek, he's going to bless all the people in the world. Um, so just picking up in seven, we'll, we'll finish out this little part here. This first part is it is beyond dispute. In verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received from by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And so, you know, you can chew on that for a while. I'll try to, I'll try to just say something simple. It's, I think the one thing we can take as we're moving through and, and just trying to process this morning is that Abraham saw that Melchizedek was, was, was better than him, whatever that was, by the spirit or whatever. Um, but what he's pointing out here is that God by law when regard to tithes said that um, that the Levites was to take tithes from their from their brethren, which is kind of another twist there, not just from the Gentiles, but from their brethren. And what he's saying is that um, that when he when he brings this, because they're four generations down behind Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, you know, Jacob, and then Levi would Levites, that kind of thing, Joseph, fourth generation. But but these ties, they're giving them to God. They're giving them to someone greater than themselves. These offerings, where he's painting that picture all the way back to Abraham, that the son of promise was doing that with his heartbeat of tithe, his heartbeat of offering. And so when they're offering, they're offering to the promise. I'll say it like that. That's probably the easiest way to say it. They're offering... Um, worship to god for the promise not for the law the law in galatians 3 which is so helpful is a uh, is a guardian and a keeper um for um uh, i wish I could, I could see it uh but it, it says till the date that the father has set and it talks about how you can be a son but as you're a child you're no better than the the servant um because you don't have those rights and freedoms and so here, all of that, that offering that the Levites were doing, were doing, and all those tithes and worship were doing it because it was required of the law, but it was to help them remember the promise and that the promise would one day be fulfilled. And so when he brings Melchizedek back, he's, there was a song that, that we used to sing. It says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And, and what the idea was is that we had kind of fallen away from the, the heart of why we were doing what we're doing. And so he's doing that in a sense, and he's bringing to his audience the attention. I know we've been doing this for a long time. 
I know some of you don't know anything else but this, but I want you to know if we think about what happened with Abraham and Melchizedek, we see this in a different way. And we begin to understand how God is fulfilling all of this in, in this carpenter's son, Jesus Christ, um, and through the cross. Um, all right, I'm going to show it that. Um, Jeff, you got anything on that? Yeah, you, know, you pointed it out that, that this was a requirement, um, Israel, to give, to tithe. But Abraham freely gave, uh, voluntarily gave to tithes to Melchizedek. Um, it makes Abraham's giving yeah. to Melchizedek greater uh, than, I guess, Israel's payment of tithes to the priesthood instituted by Moses. So, um, again, it's it's um, it's something greater in that, you know, they're all from, you know, the promise of Abraham, um, the, the Israelites were. And, and you see that Abraham gave before the law of Moses was ever established, before that commandment was ever given. Uh, so it it makes you think that there was something, there was a priesthood even, even before the law was given. Yeah. All right. Anything else? So that was part one verses one through 10. Um, so in verse 11 um, and, and, and what really, there's so much here in this 28 verses that I try not to overdo myself, but, um, but Galatians um, 3, I guess, really, you know, a couple other places, but really, you know, Romans and stuff. I really thought about a lot of other um, of texts when I was looking at this. But, but we'll start this, the second part with this first verse start. It says, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. I'll just kind of start with that for a second. We have to sometimes remind ourselves what the purpose of the law was. And what I like about Galatians 3 is it says it was a guardian or a manager while we were still children for the time set. We, you know, so we can be sons and heirs, but, but, but we're still like a servant until we come of age. Um, and so the law's purpose was to show us that we were guilty by, you know, of sin. And, and, but, but it was to keep us, it was to hold us till the promise was fulfilled. And so in this day, we, in this sentence here, we're shaping a, a little section of that because he's, he's tying the Levitical priesthood and that's what we're dealing with priesthood, but he's tying that in to the law. He's reminding us that that is connected to the law and not to promise. And so like, in Galatians 3, I'm just going to paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me, but it says something like, it says that the law given 430 years later cannot um, undo the, the promise that was made by God to Abraham. And so in the same sense, we see this sort of thing with these two priesthoods, that something that Abraham did, and I like the way Jeff said it, as a, as a willing gift, a free, free offering to Melchizedek, um, cannot undo that was established between Abraham and Melchizedek and that priesthood worship type stuff cannot undo it's, it's, and it's not, it's, it's greater than the Levitical priesthood. So 
Um, back to the text. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now, I'm going to point out this language a little bit. Here we're using the word change. Later on, he's going to use a little more aggressive word. But, but here, he's just using the word change. A change in the law as well, in association with a change in the priesthood. In verse 13, he says, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, which one has never served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that, the tribe of Moses says nothing about the priest. So we don't know who Melchizedek comes from, but we know who Jesus comes from. And we know that both of them essentially wind up being a king and a priest. Um, and then I'll just read just a little bit more. Um, this becomes even more evident when an, another priest arrives in the likeness of Melchizedek, which is Christ, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, which is that genealogy of, of, of the Levites, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witness of the age you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this kind of brings the significance of the resurrection. They killed him and he rose and death could not you know, his body didn't see no corruption, which we talked about in the beginning. Um, all of that, this, you know, I like that language that, that, that Melchizedek and Jesus were not priests by bodily descent or by genealogy, but by indestructible lives. And so, you know, he, he labored through that at the, at the first part. So, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause there. Um, because in 18, it says, for on one hand, a former commandment is set aside. So I just wanted to point out as we move into the next text, I told you, it says for when the, uh, it says in um, verse 12, it says, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. That's that softer language. But then in 18, it uses a harder language that it's set aside. So we'll talk about that in our next part. But is there anything there, um, bodily descent, instructable life? Um, any of that that you guys thought that you want to jump in on? Jeff had something to do. You got anything, Shane? Oh, there, here you come. <laughs> I'm good. Do you have anything on that little section, Jeff, before we move on? Um, just, just the idea of change. Um, you know, that the, this the priesthood is being changed, and Dennis, correct me if I'm wrong. When you read about Melchizedek in the Old Testament, you either have them um, in that passage with Abraham, or I think in Psalm one ten. And um, one ten four, yeah. One one ten four, and um, that that idea of the priesthood changed is, I think, logically developed from that Psalm Psalm one ten passage that God's not going to introduce a new priesthood unless a new priesthood was necessary. That that one was needed. Right. And so if you're looking at where we just finished up, kind of as we finish up 17, he's quoting that 110.4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he kind of breaks it up because later in verse 20, he actually begins to bring this oath in it. And, and the full part of the text is the Lord has sworn 
and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the whole 110.4. So he kind of broke it up there, you know, there in verse 17 and then in verse 20. Um, I guess um, as he's talking about, all he wanted to talk about is that he's, he's like Melchizedek when he's talking about body descent and instructable life. But then he moves on in this next section in 18. He says, for on one hand, a former com- commitment, a commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Now, that's pretty strong language. And I'll, I'll bring out why I'm highlighting that in a second. For the law made nothing perfect, which is, again, strong language, which we should know that. Right. But that's something they were struggling with. They were thinking they're still thinking that the law can make them perfect. They're not fully realizing that we after yeah, 2000 years is, of church history. This is one of those yeah. times to remember the audience who, who he was writing to. <laughs> Right. So for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Um, and so um, what I let me see if I can just read my, my, uh, my notes. Um, so th- th- I'll just tell you what I wrote here. I put here when we are talking about setting aside, we have an opportunity to address a stumbling block many struggle with. I would frame it up in the idea of fulfillment theology or replacement theology. Replacing the Jews with the Gentiles is one idea. Abolishing the law of Moses is another idea. Doing away with circumcision is even another one. All of these things has points of tension, but the idea is not to do away with, but to fulfill their intended purposes. The Gentiles are grafted into the family that are grafted into the family. They are not replacing the original children. The law is being fulfilled, not abolished. And circumcision is not by man a sign of promise, but a God as a confirmation of the work he has done in us, creating us anew. And so all of these things, when we start talking about them, someone gets sensitive and there's like, you're trying to replace the law of Moses, or, or, or they're talking bad about Abraham, or they were, they're trying to destroy the temple. You know, these were all the points of contention of the first century church from Jesus's ministry to all the apostles. And what we have to do is kind of, I went with, with Charlie yesterday to watch a horse show, Spirit Freed or something like that. But, but, but I'm going to give you a horse analogy. Sometimes when we get real sensitive and worked up, we just need to say, whoa, Nelly. We need to pull back on the reins and just say, whoa, because what we're seeing is the Hebrew author walking his audience with a little bit of whoa, Nelly. But he's trying to say, look, guys, we got to go through this. I mean, we are living in a day and age where God is fulfilling his promise. Uh oh. <laughs> I'm getting rained on. I don't know if you can. Can y'all hear me still? Let yeah. Me put it inside a second. <laughs> yeah, just a second. <laughs> it um, a sprinkle is one thing, but that one's got too much noise. Is it to... downpour? Yeah. Seems like it's every day. Every day, man. It just yeah. with it, it won't stop raining. The Seattle of the South, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's okay. At least now you don't look like you're in the witness protection program. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd fix that, but I guess it's still dark this morning. Uh, so, uh, 
All right, I forgot what it's. So we're we're here, Bali. So we all right. We're talking about this um, replacement theology. Um, you know, um, you know, if that's what people mean, then we need we we should confront that with scripture. But we need to make sure that's what what they mean. Um, but but there's a greater story to be talking about, and that's kind of why we started this. Is that we need to get a perspective on the fact, a greater perspective on the on the fact that God in Christ fulfilled so much you know um you could have a new christian that don't care nothing about the old testament it's like why are we talking on a bible study about priestly behavior that's old testament let's talk about new testament but but these shadows are important these hints are important and they help you to more fully understand what has been done for you and as you work whatever work you put in in chapter seven eight nine and ten here and even the whole book is going to help you understand the weightiness of the of the of the great salvation that you have, and and it, it'll it, I mean it, you should walk away saying my God loves me like crazy, and it should be more than a, a song that has a kind of a rhythm that you like and kind of hits the the right little spots. It should be from God's word that your eyes are open to something that you say, wow, what a what a mighty God I serve. Um, so just trying to finish up here. So we read eighteen for on one hand a former commandment. It's set aside because of his weakness and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And so our author here to his audience has both used a, a changing kind of idea, but he's also used an aggressive idea of that it's set aside and it's been useless. And I think we got to use wisdom to, um, to determine. And we talked about that a little bit about what is completely set aside. And then what is um, just a is a fulfillment, but I think that's the that's the litmus test. How is God fulfilling the the promise in all these these things? Um, you need to say something, Jeff. You look like you want to jump in. You, you good? Uh, no, okay. no. I mean, it, the law didn't have the power to save. It, it didn't have the power to to bring salvation. Um, you know, it could only right. it could only point us to our sin. Right. So these last eight verses here with starting with 20, um, this first little section um, I'd really pointed out, you know, and and I actually titled this whole section that Christ is a a guarantee of a better covenant. But um, but here in this oath, it says and it was and it was not without an oath. For, for those, and, and then listen how he ex, explains that. And so the oath he's talking about is in that Psalms 110, um, where he's fixing to talk about it more, but as if, it, as, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. So it, ponder that a bit, that, that all these Levite priests, that what the author's saying here is that they were made without an oath. So, so he's giving an oath to Christ's ministry, which is one up in it over the Levitical priest. But verse 21, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and this is the example where the author is saying he got this oath from, from the Psalms 110.4 passage. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And just in the whole text, just one other oath kind of thought is when he said, I swore that they would not enter my rest, which we read in, in like in Hebrews 4, and went back to uh, the rebellion under um, under uh, Moses. Um, 
you know, their stiff neck, hard headed unbelief, all that kind of stuff. And then Esau um, seeking repentance and um, it, it wasn't granted to him. So, so these are some of those thoughts that go along with that. But in verse um, 22, he says, Jesus makes this again to a better covenant. In verse 23, the form of priests were, um, so here we had an oath concept. So he's whipping out four, about four little concepts, but we had the oath and then we're going to move into life and death here. Verse 23, the former priests were made in many number because they, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, which is that thought I said, priest forever. Um, he's used it in the swore. He used it in the beginning and he's going to use it a lot right here. He says priesthood, um, but uh, they continue in office, verse 24, but he holds priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So praise the Lord. We've got, yeah, so we've got a better covenant that God himself made through an oath. And then we have an indestructible life, an imperishable and we, and we got a high priest. Like I said, the best way I can think of that is if you ever had the, an amazing president get in and you, and you didn't want him to get out, you know, because he was finally doing it and you're worried about there's no one like him that's going to take his place. You know, that's what we have. You know, that kind of picture that that we've had a high priest finally get into office. We have a king that finally got in office and he ain't going nowhere, you know, and that that should bring us some joy. Um so I guess we can, finally, we can finally do something about our sin condition that the blood of bulls and goats and rams couldn't do. Could never do. That's right. So and, the last little permanent. three verse. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was just going to say it was permanent because, yeah. you know, r- the raising of the dead or being raised from the dead, Jesus. Go ahead. Go ahead, Dennis. So we finished what to 20 to make intercession forever. So 26 for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like the high priest to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins. And then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered himself up. So here we're he's introducing into the language, Christ is awesome. The sinless perfection of the Lamb of God laying his life down. So so he's he's taking a moment to just talk about this. We have this great sacrifice. We have a priest that's never going to die, is in eternally in office. Uh, even God himself said, you know, could we go back to the previous chapter that he, whatever God says, he says, let there be light, there's light. And if that ain't enough, he's going to put an oath to it. So we even got him giving an oath to this whole thing and then the final fourth point here as we wrap up this third section is um in 28 for the law appoints men in the weakness weakness as high priests but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever and that's where i would lead you back to the hebrews 3 text where he talked about moses was a servant but he was faithful in the house of god as a servant but Jesus was faithful as a son. And then the Galatians three text where he talks about how when we're still a child, even though we're a son, we, um, we don't have, we, we're no different than a servant because we haven't had the, we're in promise, but we're not in fulfillment. 
And so um, the other language there is that we become an heir in Christ. And so everyone before the cross and after the Christ, um, because in that Galatians 3 text, it says not offspring with an S, um, meaning all the children of Abraham, but offspring is, is one without the S, which is Christ. So the faith that, that Abraham put in, in God, looking to the gospel and to Christ, he was saved by that, and everybody after him that was saved and became children were saved like that, and everybody after the cross are saved like that, but everybody saved through Christ. And, um, and so um, in this point, there's that Galatians 3 idea that, that, that we're just kept by the law until, we can, until faith is made available, until faith is fulfilled at the cross. Then we become heirs and the fulfillment of the promises that God made to us become a, a reality. And so uh, that, that was my last point, you know, with four is when he just says he appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So the overall picture, I think this priest forever permanently continues forever. He always lives all that. I think is maybe the main takeaway I take uh, from this, but there was a lot of, um, navigating us through things we're not familiar with there was a lot of of highlighting like amen praise the lord kind of statements um so like i said i, I tried to break it into three parts and make it f functional for us to navigate through it it was a little challenging <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, 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 I'll, I'll be honest dennis whenever we started this morning i was like there's no way he's gonna get through 28 verses <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got five um, minutes to spare yeah yeah man it was uh it, it was good I, I could tell you invested a lot of time and and you know reading into these things and i think shane touched on it too just a little bit about the resurrection you know i think in matthew 27 it says um all the chief priests of the, of the levitical line the you know the the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against jesus to put him to death and um and by the power of his endless life, like we just we just said here and at the end of Hebrews, the power of his endless life, Jesus showed that his priesthood was superior when he triumphed over death. And Shane mentioned the resurrection. And I think, you know, you look at it, there's a greater thing happening in the new covenant. And, and this chapter to me, just like there's a greater priesthood that we can put our hope in, that we can look forward to. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> And uh, I'll give you a little picture I thought about this week since we got just a minute here. Is uh, So in the parable of the soul, it, it's pretty clear in the explanation that the, the seed is the word of God. And, and, and I just thought about this two things. You know, in John 4, it says we, that true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. And you can begin to say, what is that? But let's just say hypothetically that the truth is the word of God. And that the Holy Spirit, um, you know, the, the power of resurrection that comes and lives in the believer as a confirmation that they are in Christ. because They have a new heart with new and right desires dwelling in them. Um, I say that's the spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit. We walk by the spirit, not by flesh or, you know, these kind of things. But but this wasn't say so back to the seed. So as you look to this, the, the parable, so the word is proclaimed. And, and, and it's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to it. And we somewhat have a, like, let's um, hide it in our heart, this seed. But I, but I thought about this is what was interesting. Is so in former 
you know, 101, you got to have a seed. It's got to be put in the ground, hidden in the ground, and then it's watered, and then it produces fruit. And I thought about that framework um, for us as a very practical thing. And with this text, the seven to 10 text that we're, we're starting today and spending the next few weeks in is, are we reading it? Like, are we getting into it and hiding it in our heart? You know, are we holding on to it and keeping the devil from coming and stealing it? Or, or are we, are we getting too busy in life where we're not allowing the roots to happen or, or our anxieties are choking it out? All we say, I'm just going to, as far as me and my house, I'm, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm, I'm going to invest in, in this word. And so my point being is there are times where the, where you know the word, but you don't know what to do with it. Like there's some of this that I, I'm not really grasping. Okay. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. You're holding on to the seed, but the Holy Spirit is watering it. It's open your eyes, your ears, and your heart. But let's flip that because it works both ways. Um, the Holy Spirit in you is an imperishable seed. It's the Spirit of Christ living in you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And reading your word waters that. So you may not fully know as a new believer or even as a such and such year believer, you may not fully know who you are in Christ. But one of the, or I won't say one of the best things, I'll say the best thing you can do is to read your word because the word waters the spirit inside of you. It ignites it, it inflames it. And so it begins to say, there's something in me that's, he that's greater in me than he that's in the world and so the devil seems so great, but as you read your word, it's watering the indestructible seed that's in you. And, and that's how you know. You know that I'm saved because there's something in, inside of me. And so there's a peculiarness to it of like, why do you keep coming back to God's word? Why do you read it? And even though your brain don't fully understand it, why does it kind of build you up? Because it's what the indestructible seed in you desires and the actual reading of it whether your mind understands it is watering the spirit of christ and in you and so you begin to know like when paul said i'm not my own i've been bought at a price in one sense the more you know that the holy spirit lives in you the more you know something amazing has happened into you and just as we're talking about such a great um gospel or salvation that we have when that becomes a real reality in you, that the, the, the one that spoke everything in existence has put an imperishable seed in me, that, that changes everything. So I wanted to just kind of leave you with that. I thought about that as just a quick little practical to throw out there. Um, but think through that. It works both ways. The word's water in the spirit, but the spirit's water in the word, you know, so that you can understand it. Any final thoughts? We'll be praying for you, Jeff. Yep. Amen and amen to everything you just said, man. I've got a picture of that outside. Uh, Ellie and Amy planted some some of these zinnia flowers and these um, um, planters that are off the ground. And you have to water. They're mm -hmm. like three foot tall, but they have these beautiful different color flowers. If you go one day without watering, they all wilt up and they flop over and they look dead. <laughs> So I'm like, man, we got to water these. Actually, we got to water them twice a day. But um, oh, wow. it's a it's a good picture that if if as Christians we're not we're not watering our spirit by the by the word of God, 
we're going to look dead. We're going to feel dead. Yeah, you know, yeah. we're, we're going to wilt over and not have power and life in us. Or at least it turns out. Good stuff. Well, um, Shane, can you close us in prayer if we, if we yep. don't have anything else? Lord, we just thank you for uh, just just Dennis just putting in the time and effort to dive in your word, teach us. Uh, Lord, we thank you for Jeff and his the wisdom he brings and just just exploiting everything that um that that we believe you're trying to communicate to us. I pray we just keep watering our our seed. We keep getting in your word, and uh, we we just trust that your spirit would just guide us and guide this information and you know just just work on our hearts um to live the fruitful life that you that you called us to do father we just pray for this week and, and as, as we each go to church lord that our church thrive and no matter the, the situation that you uh you bring the unity and um strength in the body lord we we pray all this in jesus name amen amen all right, guys. Well, um, I'm gonna probably go ahead and send this one out pretty quick. I don't think it needs a lot of editing. Um, so if you do want to listen to it, I'll probably have it by by noon. Um, but thank y'all. I was I was wondering if I was gonna have to do it by myself today. So I, <laughs> I was glad to see y'all. I'd heard from Keith and, and and um and Paul and then Mike had had jumped in. You know, this morning. Yeah, I'm but, sorry. I need to start thank- giving you updates as far as me. I now I do work the next. I think three Sundays, so I may just be just listening in. That's right. But yeah, uh, but pray for us. I mean, like I said, we got we're going to do chapters eight, nine, and ten, and and um, then I I think it's a it's a it's a special thing that that we're we're doing what we're doing, and and we're being able to progress. But I'm sure the enemy is going to continue to try to trying to want to stifle that but yeah i was just committing the last few minutes i'm like i might be just doing this by myself <laughs> just trying to make the best of it i appreciate y'all being here so have a good week all right brother yeah. y'all as well all right all right